0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. A couple of weeks ago, I guess about a week and a half ago now, uh, we were here uh, working. I was in my office And um, a notification came through, we use this online chat system, and uh, a notification came through and said uh, that somebody had just delivered fresh homemade cookies to the office. All right, and let me just tell you, when this happens, uh, it's like a celebration in the office whenever people bring things. That's not the point of what I'm telling you right now, but... We enjoy when people bring things to the office, all right? So anyway, so the chat came through, and, um, and I was sitting there, and I was working, and I thought, I'm going to finish just a couple more things, and then I'll go to the kitchen, and I'll get one of these one of these cookies. Well, by the time I finished and got to the kitchen, there was not a cookie inside, all right? There wasn't even any evidence. There was no plate on the counter. Uh, there was no crumbs on the ca- there was There was nothing, and so I, you know, I start... Uh, I go on the hunt. I start, what happened to these things? I know that I saw the notification. And so I start going to people's offices and I'm like, Hey, I heard something about cookies. I see no cookies. Do you know anything about this? And they're like, yeah, I I didn't get any either. And so I was, you know, so it's kind of weird, but I start going to different offices. I make it down the hall and I go to our college minister's office, Donnie De La Cruz. um, And I say, Hey man, you know anything about these cookies? And he goes, oh yeah, I had some. <laughs> and I said, some? I didn't even have one. And uh, he's like, yeah, I had some. They were, they were good. And so in that moment, we're gonna talk about feelings this morning, all right? And so <laughs> in that moment, I felt several things. I, I felt love for the cookies, right? <laughs> I felt sadness that there were no more cookies. I felt personally attacked, that nobody had saved me a cookie. And then maybe more than anything, I felt rage towards Donny de la Cruz for <laughs> eating some of the cookies, right? Uh, I, I've learned that I should have made the mad dash to the kitchen like everybody else did. I was sitting there working and then out my window, I see, I see Nick Weaver and his team fly up in their truck to the front doors whenever they got the notification. Um, it all worked out. Whenever I got home, uh, Amy Daniels, the one that made the cookies, and she had given my wife two of them, and they were awesome, all right? So I, I ended up getting to have some, but um, anyway, so it, it, was, it was there that, that I started to think about this idea that we're talking about this morning that, that we deal with feelings and the relationship to what reality is, okay? So that's what we're talking about this morning. There, there are times when our thoughts and our feelings cloud our vision of what's reality. All right. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19, that's where we are this morning. So we started a series two weeks ago in the book of Job. And uh, as you're turning there, I'll just kind of catch you up. In chapter one, um, man, things fall apart in Job's world. Um, in in kind of one moment, it seems his kids are taken, his property is ransacked and taken, all of his his livestock and his his livelihood, all of it taken in one moment. In chapter two, it gets worse. He's struck with this disease, this skin disease that's all over his body. And, And in chapter two, we see him sitting essentially in the city dump. And he's there and he's got broken pieces of pottery and he's just scraping the sores on himself, just trying to get some kind of relief, right? And then his three friends show up And for seven days, they get it right. They don't say a word, but then they start talking and they just start beating him down. And then for uh, chapter three to about chapter 40 or so, is just this conversation between the friends and Job. And they're accusing him, saying, you must have done something wrong to bring this on yourself. And if you remember, we talked about how the book of Job is this Hebrew poetry, it is a thought experiment. Right? And, and, and we know, because we've read the story, we have that advantage, that Job didn't do anything wrong. In fact, chapter 1 starts by saying there was a man named Job in the land of Uz who was blameless and upright and who feared the Lord. And so he, did, he, he was a good dude. He didn't do anything to bring it on. And then tragedy hits, disaster strikes, and chapter 1 ends in verse 20 says that he falls down in grief, which we understand that, but then it says he begins to worship. And that's a little bit, maybe difficult for us to grasp, but it says that he began to worship in that moment. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord who gives and takes away. And verse 22 of chapter one says, in all this, Job didn't sin. And so he starts blameless, tragedy hits, he worships, and he's still righteous. Chapter two says, uh, chapter two, verse 10 says the same thing. He's sitting there, he's got this disease all over him, and it says in all this he, he didn't sin. And so we know that he, he didn't in some way bring this upon himself. He's not running from God, he didn't, uh, he's not guilty of some kind of sin that, that brought all this on just for whatever reason. God has caught him and he doesn't understand why. And this book, it teaches us, again, it's a thought experiment, it teaches us that things are not always black and white, that God doesn't run the universe the way that we would. You know, we would probably say if you're good, you get good, if you're bad, you get bad, but that's, we know from life experience, that's not how things play out. In fact, the question why is asked around 25 times in the book of Job, and just spoiler alert, it's never answered, right? Right? And so what we are meant to do whenever we open this book is to wrestle with the thoughts, wrestle with the ideas that are presented here. And chapter 19 this morning is where we're going to be, and that is a response to his friend whose name is Bildad. All right? Not a popular name in 2021, but that's his name. And he is making two accusations against Job. You can find those in chapter 18, verse 21. But basically, he's accusing Job of being an unjust man and not knowing God. Okay? He's saying you're unjust and you don't know God. That's the reason all this is happening. And again, as readers, we have the advantage of knowing that's not true. It's not true. Those are false accusations against Job. He is a just man, he does know God, he fears the Lord. And so chapter 19 is Job's response to Bildad, trying to vindicate himself, trying to prove his point, going, I I didn't bring this on myself. I don't know why it's happening, but I didn't bring it on myself. And this chapter captures probably one of the lowest points in, in Job's life, both emotionally and spiritually, but it's also one of his highest. This, this chapter reads a lot like a roller coaster. You know what I'm talking about where you've been on a roller coaster and you're, you're down low and then you're, you're way up high the next minute and you're turning and you're spinning. That's kind of how this chapter is. There's deep, deep despair. And then there's soaring hope. And uh, I want us to examine both of those this morning, all right? So are you ready? Job chapter 19, let's jump in at verse 1. In chapter 18, Bildad starts by saying, how long until you stop talking? And Job in chapter 19, verse 1 says, how long will you torment me? It's a response, right? And so Job says, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? Look at verse 3, chapter 19. You have humiliated me 10 times now and you mistreat me with shame. Even if it's true that I've sinned, my mistake concerns only me. If you really want to appear superior to me and would use my disgrace as evidence against me, then understand that it's God who has wronged me and caught me in his net. Again, he's responding to chapter 18. In chapter 18, verse 8, Bildad says, You're unjust. You must have walked into this trap. You must have walked into this net in some way. And here in chapter 19, Job says, I didn't walk into it. God just caught me in his net. That's how he feels. Look at verse Seven. He says, I cry out violence, but I get no response. I call for help, but there's no justice. He, talking about God, has blocked my way so that I cannot pass through. He has veiled my paths with darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and, and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side so that I am ruined. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me, and he regards me as one of his enemies. His troops advance together. They construct a ramp against me and camp around my tent. That's how he feels. So this section, we're looking at how he feels, and he's saying, I feel all of these Different ways. In this section, uh, his feelings are completely real to him. Completely real. The things that he's feeling, he feels, are so real. This is an excruciating situation. Verse three, uh, he says, 10 times, you've humiliated me ten times." He's not actually counting specific instances, ten different times. What he's saying in the Bible, the number ten is the number of completion. He's saying you have fully humiliated me. Completely. He feels utterly uh, and completely humiliated and torn down. And he feels a couple of different ways. First, he feels attacked. Okay, he feels attacked in this, in this section. And he feels attacked by his friends. And I'm not really going to dive in too deep here, but he says, why are you beating me down? And, and then in verse 21 and 22, he says, have mercy on me. Be good friends. Right? And I know that you're gonna talk about that in your small groups, or maybe you already have this idea of being a good friend in times of suffering, but I think we just need to understand that you have a lot of power as a friend in times of suffering. Your words can either help build someone up or they can tear them down. You can help bear their burdens or you can help bury them under their burdens. And, and Jesus tells us, he modeled that we should be sensitive to the needs and struggles of others. I mean, that's literally what he told us to do. In John 13, 35, he says, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so Job, he feels attacked by his friends. Again, I'm gonna let you talk about that in your small groups. So we're not gonna dive in too deep there. So he feels attacked by his friends, and then he feels attacked by God. More importantly, he feels attacked by God. And so in chapter 18, Bildad makes all of these accusations against him. He uses these pictures of, of, of what Job has walked into, these, these very descriptive pictures of, of death and, and of the things that Job has walked into. And then Job responds with some pictures of his own to, to, to show us how he is feeling. So in verse 6, he says he feels caught in God's net. He feels caught in his net. Verse eight, you know, in my Bible, I have these underlined, I don't know if you wanna do that as well, but in verse eight, he feels blocked. Verse nine, he feels stripped of honor. Verse 10, he's, he feels torn down and ruined. He feels uprooted like a tree. Verse 11, he, he, he says, his anger burns against me and, and God regards me as his enemy. He feels like an enemy of God, and he goes on to say that it feels like his armies are just surrounding me, that they're attacking me, and he feels like God is out to get him. Remember, Job is in the story. He doesn't have the advantage of reading the story like we do. We know that God is not mad at him, God's not against him. We know that God's not actually marching. His armies around his tent, but Job feels that way. He feels attacked, he feels trapped, he feels ruined, all right? So Job feels attacked, and secondly, Job feels alone. He feels alone. Let's look at verse 13. It says that he, talking about God, has removed my brothers from me. My acquaintances have abandoned me. My relatives stop coming by and my close friends have forgotten me. My house guests and female servants regard me as a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call for my servant, but he doesn't answer even if I beg him with my own mouth. Verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife. And I know that may make us kind of giggle a little bit. He's not trying to be funny. He's saying my wife can't stand to be around me. Yeah, she can't even stand to be be around me and my own family finds me repulsive verse 18 even young boys scorn me when i stand up they mock me he was one of the greatest guys in this region one of the most powerful had all these things and now these young boys which is a, an extreme sign of disrespect are mocking him disrespecting him verse 19 all of my best friends despise me and then i think this summarizes it well how he's feeling those i love have turned against me. That's how he feels. He feels isolated. He feels abandoned. He feels alone. And you probably know whenever you're going through something tough, you're going through a time of suffering, you're going through a a hard time, may you need somebody to lean on. You need a friend, you need a loved one to walk beside you and it's, it's in those moments where you're walking through something tough, if you feel like you're in it all by yourself, it makes it so much worse. Right? And that's how Job feels. He feels that he has no one. Now, I wanna say that it does feel a bit weird to preach about feelings. <laughs> it's not something that, that, that Baptists typically do, right? We don't like to talk about our feelings a whole lot. We like to doctrine heady, theology-type stuff, and, and feelings are like for the charismatics or something, right? So it feels weird, but I want you to hear that feelings are real, especially in times of suffering. Especially in times of suffering. But, but we need to, to hear this, it, your feelings are real, but they aren't always reality. Your feelings are real, but they're not always reality. So I don't wanna invalidate how you feel this morning, but, but I want you to understand that your feelings are not usually a fully informed picture of reality. And so I'm not saying that Job just needs to look on the bright side or put on a smile. And and that's not what I'm saying to us this morning either. But we know that God is not out to get Job, but he feels that way. And so I I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what you've walked in here with. Maybe, maybe you're dealing with some difficult things, a, a difficult diagnosis. Maybe you, you have some family issues going on. Maybe you have a child who's just making all kinds of horrible decisions. Maybe, maybe the pandemic has been really hard on your home and your job. I don't know. I don't know what it is that you're walking in here this morning, but maybe you feel attacked. Maybe you feel alone. And I heard somebody way smarter than me one time say that, that all of us are either walking out of a storm, we're currently in a storm, or we're about to walk into a storm. And unfortunately, that's just how life goes. And so when it's, it's in those moments where we have a couple of different things that we can do. We can decide how we're going to respond. You can either respond negatively and turn to things like alcohol or abusive relationships or all these different negative things that you can turn to whenever you're in those situations, or in times of suffering, we can, we can understand and know that we're not going to allow ourselves to spiral down into our feelings to the point where you lose touch of reality. And, and we see that Job does that in the story. He feels hopeless. All right? He feels hopeless. But but look what happens. Look at verse 25 with me. Job says, but I know but I know. At this lowest, darkest point of his life, he feels completely hopeless, but he says, but I know. What does it mean to know something? It means to be absolutely certain or sure about something. So what does he know? What does he he know? Let's keep going. But I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will stand on the dust Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me, or maybe better said, I can't wait. And so what is he looking for? He's looking for a redeemer. He says he has a redeemer. It's this very personal thing, my redeemer, right? And and so in this story, Job is looking for vindication, He's looking to respond to Bildad and the other friends and go, look, I I did not do something to bring this on myself. And I wish somebody would step forward and vindicate me and tell the truth about my situation. That's what he's thinking of whenever he thinks of this redeemer. He's not thinking 2,500 years before Jesus came of a man named Jesus Christ who would die on a Roman cross. He's not got that in his mind, but he does have in his mind the Lord, Yahweh, being his redeemer who will vindicate him. Okay? And so what is a kinsman redeemer? That's what he has in mind. What is a kinsman redeemer? It's all throughout the Old Testament. It's this theme that runs throughout it and that's what Job is thinking. And so before I tell you what a kinsman redeemer does, I need to tell you the criteria for being a kinsman redeemer, all right? So the the criteria, uh, there's three of them, has to be a blood relative, has to be somebody who's able to redeem the situation, and somebody who's willing to, to redeem the situation, okay? So they have to be blood, they have to be able, have to be willing. And so there's, there's several times in the Old Testament, there's a lot of things that we see kinsmen, redeemers do. Here's a few of them. They, they can avenge a death. So if somebody is wrongfully murdered, they can avenge that death, uh, Deuteronomy 19 says. They can go in and reclaim and restore property. If somebody owns something and it gets taken, they can go in and, and, and redeem that back to the family. They can get it back or maybe the relative dies, they can go in and say, I'm the next closest bloodline and I'm able to, I'm able to pay for it, I'm able to redeem this, this land. They can set brothers free from slavery, Leviticus 25. They can go to court on behalf of a wronged relative, Proverbs 23, right? The most famous, probably, story of a, of a redeemer is in the Old Testament in book of Ruth, right? You know, the, you know the story of Ruth, where Ruth and, and Orpah, these two Moab women, are, are going to marry these two young guys from Judea, who, uh, th- their parents, Elimelech and Naomi, right? The three guys die, Elimelech and the two sons, they die, so it leaves Ruth, Orpah, and Naomi. And, uh, and, and these women need to be redeemed. Naomi looks at the two and says, go back to Moab. And Orpah says, all right, see you later. She takes off. But Ruth says, she goes, nope. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. Ruth stays with Naomi. Uh, they, they go to Bethlehem. And uh, it's there that they begin to look for this kinsman redeemer, this person who's in the bloodline that can redeem the land because Elimelech has died. He's the father of the house. They need somebody to redeem the land, bring them in, and save them, right? And so that's what they're looking for. We end up meeting a guy named Boaz who does just that. He redeems the land. He marries Ruth. The story ends uh, really well. But in Ruth 4.6, there's another redeemer who's closer in line than Boaz is. And he's He's a bloodline. He's able uh, to redeem the land. He has the resources necessary, but he's unwilling. He says, I'll redeem the land, I'd like to have the land, but I don't wanna marry Ruth. And so he's unwilling, but Boaz steps in and he, he is willing. And this theme of kinsmen redeemers all throughout the Old Testament, God does this uh, throughout and he redeems both individuals and the nation of, of Israel. And so that's what Job has in mind is this, this kind of redeemer. That redeemer is a picture of the ultimate redeemer who is our redeemer, Jesus Christ. Okay, Boaz in the Old Testament is a picture of our kinsman redeemer. In fact, Boaz and Ruth are mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, of this guy who came in and it was the kinsman redeemer. So Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Look at those three criteria with me. That has to be blood has to be of the bloodline. Jesus came to this earth, he put on skin and bone. He inserted himself into the bloodline of humanity for us. John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? He knew these people are going to mock me, they're going to hate me, they're going to kill me, but I know in order for men to be redeemed, there has to be blood. And so Jesus comes in, he's of the bloodline, he's also able, Jesus is able to be our redeemer. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He, he experienced all that we experienced, he felt all the things that we feel, he was the perfect substitute for our sin. 1 Peter 1.18 says, for you know that you were redeemed, not from things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of of Jesus Christ. It, it, we were redeemed by his blood. Hebrews 7.25 says that he is now able to completely save. So Jesus, through his perfect life, his perfect blood that he shed for us, he is able to save us. And then the third criteria have to be willing. And maybe most importantly, Jesus was willing to come and redeem. He willingly laid down his life for you and me. He wasn't murdered. If you ever hear somebody say that Jesus was murdered, stop them. Say, no, no, no. John 10, 18 says, Jesus says, no one takes from me my life, but I willingly lay it down. Jesus willingly laid down his life. He willingly went to the the cross, willingly died on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and his blood bought our redemption. Hebrews 12, 2 says, now let us fix our eyes on Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And so just as Job says in Job 19.25, as Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Our Redeemer lives. He is alive. He is victorious. Jesus didn't stay dead. He came back alive. He ascended into heaven. And he sits right now we don't think a lot about what Jesus is doing right now. Right now, he is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. That's what he's doing. And one day he's coming back. He'll stand on this earth to vindicate and collect his people. Revelation 117, John, the, the revelator says, he says, I, I, I saw him and I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But then he put his right hand on me. He says, don't be afraid. I was the first and the last. I am the living one. Behold, I was dead, but now I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and hell forever. That's what Jesus says, right? So I don't know what's kicking your tail this morning, but I know that you have a redeemer who loves you and saved you and is alive and victorious and he makes a way for you. He completely owns death and hell forever. He holds the keys to it. Jesus is willing to save, he's able to save, he is alive and victorious, he is our redeemer. And so just like Job, there is no life too messed up that God can't redeem. There's nothing outside of his reach. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you know him as your redeemer? If you don't, if you don't know Jesus, you are stuck in your sin problem and you need a a redeemer. The good news is Jesus has done that. He was able and he was willing and he did it. And so if you would just cry out to him, confess your sins to him, he will save you. And so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Your first step, all right, is to make that step towards Jesus. And in the seat in front of you, there's these little cards. You can just check on there. I want to know Jesus today. And you can bring it to me or Josh out here. You can put it in the black boxes. You can go talk to somebody in this room after we're finished. I mean, there's a lot of different ways, but get it right this morning. Leave here with the hope of the Redeemer. So in this story, in the story of Job, Job's heart was hurt and confused, but his head was confident in the Lord. He was confident in the Lord. And so here's the picture. There's, there's times where we are hurt, where we are torn up over something, and it's real, and it hurts, and it's not fair. But in those moments, your head has to step in and remind yourself of what you know to be true, that you have a God who loves you, a God who saved you, a God who ultimately has conquered everything. When everything else is chaos and it feels hopeless, trust what you know, Jesus is Lord. And one day, like Job says, you're gonna see him with your own eyes. There's a man, his name is Adoniram Judson maybe the greatest Baptist you've never heard of. He was a, a missionary to Burma in the 1800s. He's called the, the Father of American Missions. And he did all kinds of amazing things as he went over to Burma, and he, he uh, translated the Bible, he translated different Christian documents to, to share the gospel with these people, with the Karen people. Hundreds of people came to know uh, Jesus. He, he, um, he was a A big part in the founding of American missions work. As Southern Baptists, we have a thing that we're proud of called the IMB, the International Mission Board, started in 1845. It's one of the largest mission-sending organizations in the world, and you're a part of it, okay? Judson was a part of helping that effort get off the ground. So he did all these amazing things. But he also had a really difficult life. He had a really difficult life. His family encountered suffering and sickness and tragedy. In 1824, there was a war between Burma and England and all of the men who looked Western were gathered up and thrown into prison. And Judson was one of those. And in that prison, which the prison guards were convicted murderers, he was tortured, many of the people in prison died and Adoniram Judson was able to make it out of prison because he was able to translate the peace negotiations. And so he made it out of prison. A short time after he's out of prison, his wife Nancy dies. Six months later, his two-year-old daughter dies. And then at the time he's in Burma, he'll lose three children and two wives. Extremely, extremely difficult situation here. He ends up secluding himself. He goes into the jungles of Burma and just to hide. He builds a, a hut that he named the Hermitage. And, it, and And he basically goes out there to die. He eats very small rations of rice. He even at one point digs his own grave out there. The locals were afraid that that he was going to be killed by the, by the tiger-infested jungle that he's now living in by himself. But at some point in that 40 days that he was out there, he, he remembered the hope that he has in Jesus. And it's like, it's almost like this Job story. I feel all these ways and this is not fair, and, but I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he's going to stand on the dust. and I'm going to see him with my own eyes. And so Judson comes out of the jungle, and he goes back, and 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 because of that, thousands of people today know Jesus. And he says, "If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering." Basically, what he's saying is if I didn't just feel like God was going to use it for some kind of good, there's no way I could have encountered that amount of suffering. Man, Adoniram Judson's story, the story of Job here, is teaching us this morning that a high view of God is the only thing that sustains in times of suffering. I don't know how people make it through without Jesus. trust that not only does he allow these things to happen, but in some ways he's ordaining them for our good. And sometimes, man, the most righteous thing that we can do is just come to him with honesty in our our heart and in our voice, with tears in our eyes, and just go, "I, I don't understand it. It's not fair, but you run to him because you know that he's the one to run to, that he redeems, that he saves, that he makes all things new. And he never told us just to put on a smile, and that's not what I'm suggesting this morning. But when the going gets tough, trust what you know. Trust what you know, that you are secure in your Redeemer, that he'll never leave you or forsake you, that he says things like, if you're weary, come to me, and I'll give you rest. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that you'll have peace. In this world, you will have suffering. You're like, wait, Jesus, those two things don't go together, peace and suffering. He says, yeah, I'm telling you sorry, that you'll have peace. In this world, you will have suffering. You will. Absolutely. Mark it down. But take heart because I have overcome the world. And your feelings are real, but they're not reality. And the reality in all situations and all of life is that jesus is our living and victorious redeemer who is able and willing to save thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of second baptist we hope that we will see you in person this next sunday to find more information about service times location and ministry offerings visit mysecond.family thank you for listening